0: Welcome to today's show of the Making It Real podcast for founders who take action. Today is my special honor and pleasure to have Colin McElwee on the show. Colin started the amazing, uh, is it an NGO then, world reader that is bringing education to people that often have it hard to get education, but I'm pitching it wrong, I'm seeing. So Colin, <laughs> tell us what does a world reader actually do? And then we're gonna take it from there and how you got started.
1: Yeah, I'll give you the elevator, the elevator thing. Yeah, it's about as an ABC, we give access to books about reading. So reading is a very fundamental part of that. It just happens to be digital books and they're local and and so that's the kind of the biggest books, right? It's like, but it's relevant local material. So we give access to books, but then the C is that we have a sort of continuous engagement with our customers and our consumers of books, and we learn a ton through that, that engagement, which is the D, it's data. We, because it's digital, we tend to learn more about a book and about behaviors around a book than, you know, the average paper publisher down the road here knows about what people like, actually like or even the speed of their reading. So that's the kind of ABCD technology and people and it's kind of where the two meet. So that's, uh, and then just fundamentally, we just believe, you know, readers build a better world and there's lots of evidence
0: uh, to show exactly that. We all started discovering the world and reading and so, so that's fantastic. And you do that, actually, is it a for-profit, is it a non-for-profit, kind of what's behind it? Yeah, we, I mean, I'm from a for-profit, you know, background and my
1: co-founder as well, the same, Um, but we started off as an NGO and we're still an NGO. We find, uh, we actually run it with the obsession that a for-profit has. For-profits have clarity of purpose, it's money, right? Consumer, (laughs) customer. And we try to bring that culture but into an NGO in uh, structure, which kind of helps us by not being a for profit, helps us to get a seat at the table with governments, other NGOs, as an honest broker, because we're all about actually making change. And it's kind of like bring bring the right disciplines and knowledge to the table, but make sure you're at the table. That's the the thing. So we run it fiscally as a non-profit.
0: Super inspiring as well because you know, that we are all about as well, making it real and having an impact. And we see that it can have so many forms as well. So interesting to see as well, now no? how, how that works then for you. And interesting as well, how you bring kind of the poor, for-profit like purpose and, and some ways of management and clarity in the organization in the non-for-profit world. Um, tell us a bit as well, how did it actually got started then World Reader? What did you do personally before and how did you make that transition?
1: Yeah, I, I worked for many years in consumer goods marketing. Uh, firstly, for dairy products, in short life, I spent really, I mean, amazing, amazingly low margins. And you learn a ton around the disciplines of good sales and good marketing. I then moved into beer. My family are Irish. Um, so it's kind of a natural place for me to be. Much higher margins, global brands. And had a lot of fun um, doing that. And I, in the meantime, Between those two jobs, I did an MBA at a Sunday business school. So I was in Southern Europe. I was actually based back in Barcelona, looking after certain European markets for this uh, beer company. And uh, an opportunity came up at a Sunday business school for a corporate marketing director, a board-level position. And I'd always, I mean, you're, you're at the school, and we know the school inside out. At the time, this is going back 20 years, I just saw this kind of like, you know, not a sleeping giant, but I thought, gosh, you could do so much more with this brand and this school. And, and uh, together with a great management team, we, we did a lot. We, we, we brought about inspiring futures as a way, as a, as a kind of brand calling, both externally and internally, uh, great rankings. And it was a real virtuous circle, sort of 2001, 2010. However, and I'll say this, a big however, I found myself working at the elite end of education. And, and a brand, a brand, if you like weakness was when you're at the elite end, just have to look out 10 years and say, okay, are we going to still be a great brand if we only work at the elite end? And so we started to think about scholarships, which have over time brought more talent, which is the key part of the, both at a faculty level and as a student level. And we brought talent from around the world using those those scholarships and great that Sadie keeps to do that. But I saw the lack of access to educational materials in other parts of the world, most notably Africa, uh, and really it just set my kind of like creative juices flowing. Uh, a good friend of mine, David Richer, ex-Amazon guy, ex-Microsoft guy, showed me the Kindle one day, and uh, he's living in in Barcelona. We knew each other for many years through our kids, and I, I remember I was in the gym, <laughs> just across the road here on a machine. I was going well. This is about you can get books through digital books to places where paper doesn't get to. And I'd, I'd learned quite a lot about logistics, both at a adding and in beer marketing, believe it or not. Um, and so I kind of came back, Google's digital books, Africa, nothing. You know, e readers, Africa, nothing. And it really just came from that kernel of an idea. I went to David and said, Hey, what do you think about this? You know, Amazon are going to be interested. You know, Jeff Bezos. Uh, That guy, Bill Gates, he's got a foundation. used to work kind of indirectly for him. Surely we can bring those guys on. And uh, You know, David came back and uh, thought about it deeply. Very highly in-demand guy, but said, yeah, one of the best ideas I've heard. Um, Probably made it, you know, twice as good. (laughs) And uh, a few years later, we both, you know, we had Amazon. Amazon and Microsoft continue to be partners of ours but many many others so it really came out of conversation but having a uh, the hunger to have your antennae up and looking for new ideas and uh and also I just say we we did make a promise at a Saturday about inspiring futures and for me it had to be whatever the school had to do it had to be big had to be impactful had to be real you know this is cool about making it real and I don't know. I just kind of like struck me that creating education, bringing tech to the poorest parts of the world, you couldn't get better than that as long as you made it work, and uh, that's really that's really where the the original idea came from.
0: Mm-hmm. So inspiring, so, so wonderful to start with that vision to have that. But then, what was it like? This feeling, then, should I really go for that? You had no as well. Then I decided you, ha- you do have the income check coming in every day, you know, and then say, Hey, we have this NGO, we, we maybe haven't even found it yet. When did you actually found the company? Was there like a triggering moment then where you said, No, now we're going to go all in?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So I'm 57 years old now, so I was 47, 46. And I was sad, you know, I've got a lot of friends that were kind of saying, what do you want to do with the rest of your life, right? You know, and I've been very lucky in my professional and personal life and I have great contacts and great networks. And for me, it was kind of like, what can I do with this? Knowledge, luck and, and networks, frankly. And Asadi is an incredible catalyst of networks, you know? So I was hungry for that. I thought about the monthly check (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but, you know, it was kind of like, uh, if I don't do this, oh, no, I'm don't do i going to learn a ton. Even if I fail and fall flat on my face, like in 12 months or a year and a half, I don't know what'll happen. But the worst possible scenario was I was going to learn a ton. So for me, it was a no-brainer. And I remember actually my, my boss at the time, I went to her and said, you know, I'm thinking about doing this project, I'd love to do it, I want to do that. And, and she said, well, you're obviously thinking about doing it at the weekends because nobody resigns from a SADIC, you know? That was the thing. And I said, well, actually, <laughs> I do want to do this. And it's kind of like, uh, just a, uh, for me. And it was kind of all of the, the energies aligned, if you like. So uh, uh, I totally respect people. This is, so World Doing this been, we talk about, you know, as being a, a success, right? So. But I have so much respect for entrepreneurs, serial entrepreneurs that fail and fail and fail, but keep going. So I honestly can't say I've done that. I've done a few. I'm good at like bringing ideas to, to the table, and others have done it in the past. This is this has been sort of our idea, and it's been a success. But I have absolute respect for people that keep keep on trying because they know what they're doing. They're learning. They're learning on every level and so much experience to just to
0: share Mm -hmm. wonderful so this total conviction if i don't do that i will regret that forever having a strong partner as well here so that helped a co-founder say okay we're gonna start we're gonna make it real tell us a bit how did you actually then got started what were the first steps to test it out to see if it could work like that you know how did you finance it how did you get started You know, uh, we actually started
1: physically in my office in a setting. (laughs) So we kind of said, we said to Amazon, said, okay, we started with the Kindle, actually, as it happens, right right at the start. We've moved on. We were on mobile phones and tablets and Android or whatever right now. We started with the Kindle. So we said to Amazon, listen, we want to do this, you know, give us a few samples. So they sent us 30 Kindles. They were great, you know, and uh, in fact, the Amazon Kindle team said, you know, we work 16 hours a day. And uh, ostensibly to make money, you know, because that's the customer, whatever, it's Amazon. But like, this is what we create this technology for, to take it to places where, you know, it wouldn't otherwise get to. So, and I remember we, you know, at lunchtime, David used to come into my office and uh, we used to, you know, we'd have a couple of hours and we'd be charging up the Kindles, uh, loading them. I remember nobody, even Amazon had done this at that time, Putting 30 books on 30 Kindles. Amazon were very good at putting one book on one Kindle or one book on six Kindles but never 30 books on 30 Kindles at the same time and so we kind of like wrote some software or work with Amazon to actually do that in a seamless way and uh, yeah there's a few pictures of me and David <laughs> there right at start. and then we got that ready kind of ready over a few weeks. I had already sort of like informed the school I'm going and uh, I left at the end of February, 2010, I think by the 10th of March, I was in a school in a rural part of Ghana. The uh, friends of friends had organized this pilot and we were sitting in front of teachers and, and 60 kids. I mean, they're big classrooms, right? So one Kindle between each child. And really doing something I learned at a study was, uh, you know, they call it design thinking or human-centered design or whatever. Finally, just observing, it, see what happens, right? Not saying that's, that's the panacea, it will work, which, by the way, so many things in developing countries go wrong like that. But you, Jan, you, know, you know this. If you're at Procter & Gamble and you say, I have the best toothpaste in the world, you don't know the consumers, and you throw it at the market, and it fails, then you deserve to get, you know, the sack shot, right? You have to observe the market and test things out. So, so bringing those learnings actually from uh, a study, and study, a study was doing quite a lot around design thinking at that time. Startup was one of the things I was pushing in school at the time. So that was great. And uh, so we just did that. And we did that for the first six months. Observed, see the barriers, see the problems, genuine problems, uh, and then try to smooth things out. And we talk about that. Well, financing, it was just like you know probably one of the worst things i did as a deal with david it's kind of we went 50-50 everyone thought it out and i said you put 1% of your net worth in i'll put 1% and we'd have been we would have been 50-50 but in that sense but it was uh but it was great for me it was just i'm going to put all my savings into this let's go we can go do this for a year a year and a half and then let's see where we are and review where we are so it was self finance but then we actually started to get some good partners on. Uh, by luck, on that first trip to Ghana, I went to the capital of Ghana after the, after the trial. And I went to see the British Development Agency, they're called DFID. And I said, listen, I'm British. British Irish, but British, got a British passport. We're doing this really cool thing. And do you want to know about it? And they said, how long have you been around for? And I said, well, 10 days. <laughs> so they said, come back in five years. Right, we don't, we don't want any, any idealists. We're not gonna waste that time with you guys. I went to see the US Development Agency, USAID, part of the State Department. And I'd, I unbeknowningly, I, I rang up and I spoke to the, he was quite a, a maverick actually, head of the mission for education. He said, you're using US technology, come in and let's talk about it. So I did and uh, I went in, I now know how much I didn't know at <laughs> that time. And uh, he basically listened to me, kind of with his team, jaw dropping and said, so you want to put a $400 device in the hands of an African child? He said, you guys are crazy, crazy. But you know where technology prices are going. I totally get it. And six months later, yeah, and we were an official partner of the State Department. So that kind of brought, brought credibility. Us, that we were able to leverage with other parties, with the government, governments, etc. So it's all about leverage. You get a little bit of funding together, but then leverage all of your contacts out there. And that's what we did. And that's how, what kept us going in that first year. Mm-hmm. Okay, Actually, it Fasc- keeps it up to date, frankly, you know, so.
0: Fascinating, because no? many entrepreneurs early on, they struggle, they wish, they see it very clearly, we need this one business development deal, this one kind of collaboration, this one partnership, but right now we're just starting, we don't have a huge track record to show for, we so much believe in our vision and our, you know, in our project, any advice on how to forge these first relationships, these first partnerships when you are just starting?
1: Yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm quite an optimist on this. And uh, I actually enjoy meeting people and sharing what we're doing. And I find if I go to 10 meetings, maybe one will have a tangible uh, return to the organization. But in the other nine, I'm an advocate for what we're doing. I'm getting the word out. I'm learning. I'm getting responses that go, yeah, that's great, Colin, but... So you never waste your time on that. So I think when you are trying, I think some entrepreneurs clearly kind of like map out who their priorities are, but also look or put it like this in the days pre-COVID, we have conferences and whatever, get out there, talk to people. You don't know who you're going to meet. And you may at the end of the day say, that, oh, that was a waste of time. But in six months, somebody rings you up from there. And. And I'll say that in a slightly optimistic fashion. I'm very planned in one sense of what I do. And then I'm kind of like, whatever. What about what I want to do? sit, sit in front of my computer in my house, uh, pre-COVID, I'm talking, and just go, okay, things, good things are gonna happen. You gotta be out there and you gotta be talking to people. And uh, so I think it's just that optimism uh, is really, really key. So it's plan, planning, but I have a sort of little bit of chaotic optimism. It's a really good help.
0: How would you do that now during COVID? No, one, so many people are struggling out, struggling with kind of meeting actually in person as well. I need advice there. How do you currently do that? You know, it's really funny. Um, I probably do more
1: networking now than I, I would have done you know pre-COVID because you can get to you can join conferences, you can get in, you can get speaking opportunities. One thing that I, became, I was a founding member of through, through World Reader of uh, Davos last year was an organization called Catalyst 2030. In fact, I actually came up with the name for that because that's exactly what it is. It's the Sustainable Development Goals 2030 and it's a group of organizations that were about 50 strong 12 months ago. Now they're 700 strong and they're social, all social entrepreneurs. So. Happy to to share the the link for this if people want to, entrepreneurs or social entrepreneurs want to get in contact and want to join that. It's a movement. uh, It's a movement around the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, but it's like world reader can't do this on their own. Uh, Care or plan or save the children can't do this on their own. But together and through collaboration, there's a chance, right? So it's about collaboration to achieve the SDGs. Now, being a kind founding member of that, I've been part of that as it's grown and grown and grown. I'm on two or three calls a week with Catalyst, and I can't tell you how much I've learned about other sectors, other geographies. Uh, and it's really just it's a great way to actually, you know, for us to be there and to be, if you like, uh, a shop window for what we do. But boy, I've learned about tens of hundreds of other organizations and what they're doing. So I found i found COVID through Zoom to be incredibly uh, valuable in terms of learning. And I'd also say a thing as well, uh, so a friend of mine yesterday, he's done courses, you know, on uh, at, uh, all sorts of famous universities around the world, you know, on everything from ornithology to design thinking, right? so, so you choose your passion. I think, I think, you know, this is the time, so actually invest in yourself and the, the barriers to get that sort of knowledge have come right now. So you may not, you may not meet the people face to face, but you can still network over time effectively and build trust and build those bridges. So, uh, yeah, yeah. But i, I you know been a social animal. I can't wait to get on a plane again and get back to, to meeting people, especially in Africa and India uh, and South America where we're working.
0: Mm-hmm. So maybe on the networking side as well, many people are interested in the developing world and building initiatives there, projects there, their own ventures there. Any advice on, because there oftentimes relationships do matter, knowing people, and so any advice how to work this? And I assume as well, many countries, the countries are quite different and so, but maybe some journalist advice how to get a foothold there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there's a phenomenon, and I was very aware of this when we started, but really the kind of like the global north, you know, let's let's call it Europe and the United States, kind of talking down to the global south. And it's not normally explicit, but it's a kind of like, hey, we have these solutions uh, and the means, take them, right? So that might have worked 20 or 30 years ago or worked in of Commerce. It clearly kind of didn't work, right? Because those systemic problems continue. Uh, to build those partnerships, you have to have humility with local, not just people, but with lo- the organizations. Because at the end of the day, and this is so common sense in the business world, right? So you have a great product built in Germany or the UK. You take it to, you know, take it to a country like Kenya, for example. If you don't have a local distributor that knows local customers and knows local, local consumer habits, it doesn't matter what your product is. It doesn't matter. It ain't gonna work, right? So you have to go in and say, we can bring this part of the package, but you're the key because you know know this. So when we're talking about not-for-profits and some of the problems not-for-profits are trying to solve, and in our case, it's, I'm gonna say in inverted commas, just reading, but creating a habit around deep reading. You have to have local uh, expertise that is really telling you what to do, what's good about what you're doing, what what could be improved to make it work. And that's the fundamental thing, which is, like I say, that's uh, marketing 101 in the business world. And I'll I'll repeat that many times I've learned and I bring over so many disciplines from the business world into what we do, because a lot of the not-for-profits don't have that clarity of purpose. uh, And I've lost that feeling with the customer and the consumer, All I say not that feeling, they might talk a good talk, but it's about doing it and doing it every day with humility and grace and open-mindedness. And that's really, really essential. And I can tell you, your local partners will suss you out very quickly if you're the real deal or not. And like I say, this is kind of keeping it real, but if it's real, you are making it fit for purpose locally. And uh, that's the best advice I can, Give any any entrepreneur working from the global north into the global south. Mm-hmm.
0: Tell us a bit where Worldreader is right now, and then maybe in very quick terms, because you know, because of the limited time we always have on air, uh, how how you actually got there. Yeah, um, so we work
1: inside schools and outside schools. Inside schools on on devices now, like you know, Android tablets, and and and, and whatever. we get to about three hundred thousand. Children and teachers, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa, but we've done quite a lot in India recently. We also work on mobile phone outside of the school because mobile phones are, are not allowed in the school environment for good reason. So, uh, I'll, 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 this is a feature phone, which a lot of people have to. Have. <laughs> I remember that
0: one, <laughs>
1: <laughs> like a Nokia. Like this is, uh, well, people are using about sixty percent of. We get on about twenty-five million feature phones a month. And uh, there's a long tail of people that interact with our library, our app, but it's a library of books, local books on there. Um, but we've learned a ton about what people are reading and what they're not reading. Great books that sometimes people don't read because on that small screen, they just don't—they can't engage. But other books that are much more simpler and immediate to interact with. Um, so, so we're very strict on what we measure as a reader. So it's not something that just comes on our platforms and just messes around for 30 30 seconds or whatever. Many app owners would say they're a user, right? So we have a very high bar. The person has to come on, has to look for a book, find a book, engage with that book. We can, we can in an anonymous way, measure if they are uh, really reading or they're just flicking through. Uh, and we have a tremendously high bar uh, as an algorithm determines what that person has become a reader and is coming back, etc., etc. So we've got to about 17 million children and young people over these 10 years. Uh, and every year it's getting faster and uh, uh, we get more and more distribution and we're learning more and more. So in terms of that, that's our, our impact to date. Uh, going forward, it's really just building that up. One, one of the things that we came to this and said, scale, because there are 800 million people that are illiterate in the world, 800 million, but that underestimates the, the lowly literate. So there's about two and a half billion more people. So we're talking about three billion people plus as a market. So if we can't become a big part of that directly or indirectly through our partners, then we're just going to be remaining or dropping out of the ocean. So we want to accelerate our impact uh, to get to many Tens, if not hundreds of millions of people more in the, in the coming years.
0: That's impressive, you know, the size and the impact you have right now. And as well, it's really great and you know, very inspiring to see that vision. Maybe looking forward first, uh, what will it take to get there? Any like, note for people to understand how you take the venture from the current state, where you have already massive impact, to the next? And then we'll look as well and quickly how you got there. Yeah,
1: yeah, I'll come back to that, how we, got, how we got there. But yeah, how you do that is great doing, you know, there's a phrase, pour petrol on the fire, right? It's, gonna, it's working, but do more of that. Do less of what's not working. Obsession, like I say, with customers and consumers, continue to learn. We get a million lines of data every day. And we have a team of data scientists working on that to actually understand again, what's working, what's not working, country by country, because you can tell where that, where that data is coming from. Uh, it's really kind of repetition, but adapting to market needs. COVID has, well, at one point, eh, almost 85% of schools in the world were closed, 85 And UNESCO came to us and said, you guys know a lot about out-of-school out of school, reading, right? So I'm not even going to call it education. I'm just going to keep children reading, keep young people reading. And so we've had a lot of uh, focus on our work in the last 12 months. Um, i say thanks to COVID. Now, is that going to go away? I don't think so. I think, in fact, most reading anyway takes place outside of a school environment. Um, And that is really going to be a catalyst to us in terms of getting to the next 10 million, 20 million and 100 million. How did we get to this point? Yeah, it was just really, uh, like I say, a bit bit of optimism, uh, good networking. Uh, Did we overextend ourselves in terms of geographies? Undoubtedly. (laughs) So we've always kept the strength because we could have just kept in Africa, you know, 53 countries, that's enough, right? But we we went to India, uh, Middle East and South America, uh, but boy, have we learned a ton, and we, we really trying to not beat ourselves up, but really we're quite risk takers uh, because we, we know we've got something that works in certain parts of the world. Can we adapt it for others? And we do adapt it. To date, that's been successful. Um, but honestly, yeah, if we weren't taking a risk and we were playing it safe, that probably is not the DNA of our organization. And uh, that's how we've got to where we are today
0: and it's gonna sustain us for the next 10 years, I hope. Fascinating, if I zoom in a little bit there, I imagine you with the 30 readers, now look, there's the big question around the content, which content should we put out there, and then moving beyond the first readers, and sorry if we hear some background noise here, and <laughs> well, we try to get limit that, but it's impossible as well, the world in progress, so to some side, but taking that note, these, this initial, vision, you have the outlet, you have the, the, the readers, first the Kindle readers, how, No, where did you get the content from and how, how did you get to now, well, You know, I imagine the data streams and the people are now analyzing what works, getting into retention of the readers, really determining how do we measure retention, things like that, um, but, but just to give us some flavor that how do you get from this first 30 readers to maybe the first, let's say 100, 2000 readers,
1: yeah. You know, in that first week in Ghana, on front of the school, so we brought down 30-year readers loaded with Penguin Random House books. It's called the Magic Treehouse Series for, for kids seven, eight, nine years old, you know. And of course, kids in Africa may have missed years of school. There was a couple of kids that had been in the war in Sierra Leone, and they were about 13 or 14, but they were in a Uh, uh, a classroom, you know, for seven or eight-year-olds. So you're talking about a really diverse group, amazing trauma some of the children had been through. So we took these great books down, children's books down. And then at the last minute, I, this is the World Cup in South Africa. Well, you know, the soccer football World Cup was going to happen and Ghana were playing. And I just kind of like took a Wikipedia article on the Ghanaian national football team and put it onto the Kindle. And so you had like 30 Random House books, brilliant books, and then one very badly formatted, because <laughs> I couldn't format it. It was kind of like like this, of around the Ghana National Football Team. You know which book they were reading, right? And it was because- it was an image, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it was local and it was relevant to them and it was out their life and they poured over it. And then they looked at the tables of goals and appearances player by player. And, this is girls and boys, so we goes, oh gosh, this is local, it's local content, you know, uh, three years later, we had 400 African publishers uh, signed up, and, uh, and this is a big part of what we do, is taking books that have only been turned into paper, but taking those digital files with the publisher, signing agreements, sharing our knowledge with them, and making EPUBs out of those books, and, uh, and that's really what our big, and, you know, and I wouldn't have seen that if I hadn't been down there and observed the kids like just like going wild about these books and down. Uh, so that was a really big thing and that's been a major thing for bringing publishers, local publishers on board, local governments, every government minister of education says to me, first thing they say always, they say the publishers aren't going to like what you do. And the first time I had to go to the publishers and, and they goes, we love what you're doing because you're opening a new market. So now before I go to see governments, I, I go to the publishers first in the country, sign up, you know, half a dozen of them, and then go to the government. And, and governments go, ah, right. If the publishers are on board, then this because they because they see a profit in this and an income stream coming from uh, assets that they've already created, except just like turning them into EPUBs. So you know, Yann, if there's just one thing, it's like, it's local content, but actually having, building a, an ecosystem, a real business ecosystem for others around what we do, that's what's going to sustain it. And I, I'm very, I direct say, you know, if, if we collectively got hit by a lorry or a bus tomorrow, that ecosystem would live on. It doesn't need us. We can be the catalyst and we'll continue to be the catalyst wherever we go. Uh, but some countries like Kenya, are put you know into their national budget, uh, not just edutech, education technology, but books, content, and now they create that. and They use our data and they use a lot of our publishers and whatever. You know, do we get any money out of that? Actually, no. But if we contributed to that decision of systems change in Kenya? We have made a contribution to that, and uh, so that's how we that's how we roll. If you like, is really bringing best practice to play because that is digital is the only way actually you can get books to people in rural Africa that already have 2G. They have 2G. 2.5G is in fact enough for books. That's all you need. So that's that's going to be if you like our catalyst. You know. Uh-huh. To keep going.
0: Fantastic. I can see as well that definitely these conversations with the book publishers that I used to get paid maybe more by book. to no, say Hey, No, that was yesterday. Now we're talking about different target market that you're currently not addressing. We have to change a few things here. Maybe a few lessons learned there. What if you work with some big incumbents, some bigger companies, and you now want to persuade them to take their product to other markets, to license maybe in a different way? Well, people, I maybe quickly on that one, I wonder as well, many people wonder, um, I imagine, uh, how, how can people pay for these books? How can they pay for the content? So how, how did you make that one work? That content, really high-quality content is accessible for them?
1: Yeah, so two things
0: there for the publisher,
1: right? So books are really expensive uh, at retail. And you can say, you know, a textbook for a, a junior school student could be sort of 8 or $10, but let's call it 10 right, let's call it a, the publisher will get a net net profit back on that book of $1, 10%. And that's a lot of risk because he could have a lot of books in the warehouse at the end of the academic year that will never get sold, that wipe out that profit. We take the digital book, the digital file behind that, that paper book, and turn it into an EPUB. We said to the government, right, we're going to price this at $1, but 70% will go back to the publisher, 30% to us, just to keep us going, and what's happened there? The price of books went, has gone from a retail price of 10 to one, which makes them absolutely more accessible. Publishers are so happy because you've taken just about all of that risk out because you don't get paid, you're not delivering, you haven't got warehouses full of books, whatever, and they're getting 70%, 70 cents back on, on $1. Does that kill the paper books uh, market? No, they can continue to do that. This is, if you like, incremental. So having publishers on side is really. It's really, really fundamental. But then you can like, take that to government and say, this is, in a real way, where perhaps in London or New York, digital books prices haven't come down, and there's all sorts of reasons. Mainly publishers just don't want to bring prices down in the global north. In the global south, they totally get it. They say, right, this is, we've got these assets, but they're only getting to 5% of our population. As they're textbooks. We want them to get to 100%. And if they're reading, reading storybooks, You can go to a global market, the Diaspora, Ghanaian Diaspora, for example, in the United States, buy those digital books online through Amazon or or whoever. So it's really, that's one thing. The other thing that we found is that if you have, say, 50% girls and 50% boys in a classroom, or you have a sample, 50-50%, girls read more than boys, but not by a little. By about five to six times UNESCO did some research on that data. So what you're 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 seeing there is that uh a totally they call it in business under trading you're under trading with girls right and girls are an amazing lever we all know that of development uh that's kind of like if you can there used to be a great philosopher writer out there Chris Hitchens who said that if you want to end poverty then the answer is empower. Women empower young girls, and you're going to you're going to wipe out a lot about poverty. So reading and getting girls reading where they want to read, and, and the data shows they do, is is amazing. So that we can actually do that, we get publishers on side. We've got many women's groups, and we write. We have new books that are written in Africa by publishers there. We commission them for both boys and girls, but they are stories about girls empowering themselves, short stories, lots of color. Uh, we we kind of know the secret to get somebody to pick up their phone and read. And that's something we've learned over, over 10 years. Uh, and it's using those dynamics, if you like, that get people not just access, but actually getting them reading and then create an impact thereafter. And like I say, books, reading knowledge in the hands of boys and girls is amazing, but in the hands of girls, it's, uh, it's country changing. Frankly, it's transformation.
0: That's wonderful. It's so inspiring and so great to see. I imagine as well now many people feel inspired and say, hey, have you worked on the content distribution in the sense that maybe in self-publishing or getting maybe people that say, hey, I want to donate things. I want to donate content and see where that one goes and that you have innovative ways of content production.
1: Yeah, uh, it is just like the screen's
0: coming up. Okay, great.
1: Okay, you can still see me, right, Jan? Yeah. Yes, perfectly. Good, good, good. Um, Yes, we do exactly that. So what we never wanted to do or never want to do is to take the place of the publishers. So what we do, we've done this in Nigeria, Ghana, and in Kenya. We've created like a a public competition to say we want stories uh, that are no more than X thousand words. So the short stories, short chapters that may have... Two or three minutes kind of reading. Uh, we want them to be stories that are demonstrating girls and women's empowerment, but they have to be credible and they have to be attractive for boys and girls to read. And so we kind of set these competitions up and it's prize money. Uh, uh, and we're looking kind of like for 10 or 20 stories. And the publishers come together, a certain number of publishers locally come together. They're kind of the judging panel. And then they will take the stories that win, the top 10 or top 20, and they will help those authors to turn what is like a, a, a summary manuscript into a book. Uh, and then what we do, of course, we take their stories and we, we put them on our platform and we publish them and we give data back to the authors. And to the publishers uh, on what's working and what you know what could be better, you know. But these are normally really, really, uh, say, refined stories for the platform. So what's happened there? You've brought new authors that would never ever get published ever get published into the ecosystem. You've demonstrated that everybody can write a book if they've got a mobile phone. A lot of these manuscripts are actually written on mobile phone, not on a laptop, right? So. So you're bringing new talent in, you're sharing what actually works in terms of stories on mobile platforms, which is the absolute future for publishers and publishing in Africa. And then you're getting stories that are empowering women out to hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. Uh, in their own countries. These are stories about Kenyans in Kenya, Nigerians in Nigeria, Um, and there's impact. We know there's there's gonna be impact in terms of getting into, because we get a lot of response from people that love the stories, give us lots of comments and feedback. So just by doing, if you like, that competition, uh, you create all of that impact, but you're also empowering the publishers. So we don't wanna be the publishers of those books. It's local publishers that become the publishers of those books, so you know that's been highly successful in what we've done.
0: Wonderful. We're getting towards the end of our show today. Two more questions here coming up. One, you have, you're touching so many lives, millions of people of lives, getting them to read. There's so many activities, so many things to focus on. Is it in terms of getting things done and making it real? Is there certain like a guiding concept or something that you use a lot where you say, hey, this could help other founders too in their day-to-day operations?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say that it's just continually share what you're doing in that kind of open innovation uh, philosophy really is like, you don't have really much to gain by not sharing and contrasting your knowledge. And in not-for-profit, so say, even social enterprises, they're not very good normally in terms of collaborating with other, other entities. In for business, a for-profit, kind of you can find really great, you know, within a year or two, you know, we've got you know, this part of the ingredient, but we need to do a joint venture with X, Y, and Z or be bought out by whatever company to actually use. What you've discovered and share that at a bigger scale so what we'd say is just just continually share uh, i mean you're gonna have proprietary knowledge you know if you can get some you know ip around that great but then go out and share it because you when you share you get amazing amount of feedback and that's really something that we've been we've been doing for these 10 years either at conferences or with partnerships you get a nda non-disclosure agreement Put on your ta- the table what you've discovered. And really, you know, we're doing that constantly. And uh, with big, big multinationals, by the way, say, listen, this is what we can bring to the party. What can you bring? And that's that's just a really kind of like the DNA of what we do. And I'd say it's really, you know, business school, I'm really happy to say in the last 20 years, because when I went back to study about 20 years ago, corporate social responsibility was a new thing. In fact, nobody really understood it. Social entrepreneurship hadn't really been invented, if you like, in a, in, a, in a real way. When I go back to a study and I give a class about what we're doing and what we've learned, you know, half the MBA class is so, uh, so interested in making a social impact. And I would say, frankly, you know, even, even, you know, the top 100 companies in the world, if they can't say to their incoming uh, Uh, employees, what they're doing socially as an organization, and I'm not talking about CSR, but in a real way, then a lot of that talent will not stay and hang around because talent now wants to have much more meaning in what they do. So I'd really say, you know, we're a small part of that ecosystem. A lot of social entrepreneurs are the catalyst to companies. And I've been at the World Economic Forum where the head of the World Economic Forum kind of said, to the group you know the you know the 2000 people in the room can all of the social entrepreneurs stand up and we kind of like you know there's about 40 or 50 of us in the room and stuff and then he said everybody else in the room look at them because you the biggest companies in the world will be doing exactly what those people are doing in 10 or 15 years you can learn from them so i think there's a lot of great business school students that are coming through asadi and other business schools that have sussed this out and understand that this is the way to go. They take big loans out, as we know, to do an MBA, but they go away with the knowledge and the experience to make impact, not just economically, uh, but in a real social sense.
0: We can definitely see that as well for the startups as well. Their purpose is very, very important in all the projects, all the initiatives that people have as well. And finding these bridges as well to larger corporations, definitely huge opportunities there. Colin, you, you've traveled quite a way with World Reader. huge impact there. What is for you personally the most, let's say, rewarding thing, the thing that you enjoy most right now as you build a World Reader to have even more impact?
1: Um, you know, I'll put it in these terms. I, like I said, I, I, I referred to earlier, I've been lucky in my life professionally and personally. You know, we live in this beautiful city of Barcelona. And, uh, but I've been able to bring a lot of that, um, into an alignment with something that kind of really squeezes my knowledge that I've learned today. And, uh, but I'm learning constantly I'm learning from so many other people seriously day in day out and uh you know like I said you know I'm not I'm not a youngster you know and I was talking to somebody about I mean retirement <laughs> like, uh, a few days ago and I was thinking well I'm not not going to retire from this whatever I do you know I mean if I if I retired tomorrow yeah I'd be looking for a job like this to stimulate me you know and uh, to get out there and to do something meaningful. So while I've got it, you know, I'm gonna keep doing this till I drop. So for me, it, it, I consider myself very, very lucky to have found uh, this, but but through my life, I've met incredible people and uh, gr- great people, like yourself, Jan, and other people through the Sadiq. I mean, it's a great school and uh, with a great heart and great talent. and. Uh, I just kind of use, if you like, those networks and those assets really for for uh, at least a public good in the area that, that I am. So really, you know, I don't have, I have lots of ambition, but not necessarily to do another thing, just to do more and more and more of what I'm doing uh, at a much, much, much bigger scale.
0: Mm-hmm. And I can wonderfully see that No, and the energy that you have. And I think as well, the best of all, when people think of should I really go in as so always, if you can start a project that you would never want to retire from, you know, because you're so excited and you, you want to just build it out further and further. I think that's really the most rewarding, maybe the the thing that people really should aspire to. Colin, thank you so much today for taking the time sharing all these wonderful insights and all the best for World Reader for even leveraging a much bigger impact and getting the people to read and then as well, I think, really changing the world by that. Thanks so much, Colin.
1: Oh, thanks to you, Jan, and to Asadi. Just I'd say, if anybody listening to this wants to contact me, you know, we can leave uh, my, my details there or has ideas of collaboration, please, because this is all part of the learning thing. And it goes both ways so what's uh, the
0: best way to reach you then?
1: Well you can find out on Worldreader, World uh, but you can write to me at Colin with 1l at worldreader.org that's my personal email very happy to, to hear from anybody about you know feedback about this and also you know what we could do better you know if there's ideas out there.
0: Maybe there's an exciting way as well for entrepreneurs to work together. Thanks so much and much looking forward to the next steps and the big impact you'll have with world reader. Thanks so much, Colin. Thank you.